You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text today comes from Luke chapter 23, and this is the passage where Jesus says from the cross or prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is, of course, a great example of Jesus's famous enemy love. He prays this on behalf of the Roman soldiers who are in the midst of crucifying him. And I've always thought there was something else really profound about these words. Jesus's words here come from a place of deep compassion and understanding of the human condition. He understands that these men doing this to him don't know really what they're doing. They don't know that they're crucifying an innocent man. They don't know perhaps, that they're participating in a system of evil and and injustice. There's something really powerful about the ability to have compassion and understanding for those that harm us. There's actually something, I think, really kind of liberating and healing about that, not just for ourselves, but for others. And I want to talk about that today. About 25 years ago, when I was in my early 20s, if you're doing, if you're doing math, <laughs> uh, about 25 years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I did something awful to a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine named Dan. I've shared this story before, probably, but bears repeating. Um, I heard through the rumor mill that Dan was going to gay bars and was dating guys. And I called him up to see if that was true. And he admitted it, Not trying, he wasn't trying to hide it. And I told him, well, Dan, based upon 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not supposed to have anything to do with an immoral brother. So you and I can't be friends anymore until you come back to the Lord. And he took it pretty well. He didn't get upset, didn't get angry. He said, okay. We hung up the phone and I didn't talk to Dan for 13 years. That is until I reached out to him on Facebook and begged his forgiveness and and apologized and told him I've changed. I no longer think that way, believe that way. What I did to you was awful, and I am so sorry. And he forgave me. You know, looking back on that, why I did that to him, you know, I thought I knew why I did it to him. I thought I was just being a good Christian. I I was following the Bible, doing what God wanted me to do as it was, as it were. But now I look back on that and I, and I can see that, no, I was really just motivated out of fear. It's afraid of God, afraid of getting it wrong, afraid of Dan, afraid of the gayness, all that. But at the time, I couldn't see that. Father, forgive me, for I know not what I do. Isn't this the insight we often gain in therapy? We are strangers to ourselves, are we not? We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. Isn't this the, the, 
the great insight we often gain from doing counseling or doing therapy. In therapy, we discover that our own intentions and motivations are often a mystery to us, to say nothing of the intentions and motivations of those around us. That's even harder to decipher. In therapy, we, we discover that we are driven by what's called the unconscious, which is, in other words, these, these deep hidden anxieties and desires that, frankly, we are kind of enslaved to. We don't really have direct access to. In therapy, we can uncover them a little bit, but ultimately they are a part of a shadow side of us and we are in some ways enslaved to them. Moreover, we discover in therapy that much of what makes us us, and I'm putting us in scare quotes because we don't really know who we are, much of what makes us us was programmed into us at a young age, yes? By our parents, our family, our culture, or even was programmed into us by sheer genes and biology. Our, our personality traits, our temperament was inherited, genetically even. Do we even have free will? That's a good question. It's a question that is hotly debated today among philosophers, social theorists, and analysts. And I don't have an answer for you. I suspect the answer is both yes and no. So let us pray, therefore. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. There's an old saying that goes, to understand everything is to forgive everything. To understand everything is to forgive everything. Now, that could be a little problematic <laughs> because, because I think that statement could be used to excuse abuse or make light of abuse or to make victims of abuse feel like you just need to get over your hurt feelings and forgive and trust your abuser again. No, we need to be careful about that. But that statement holds a kernel of truth, like many things in life. It holds a kernel of truth. To understand everything is to forgive everything, because many times, the more you know about someone, their background, their trauma, their pain, the pressures they're under, the fears they're harboring, the more you know about that stuff, the more you can understand them and see them less as a, as a monster, and more as just a, a broken human being, which is what we all are, if we're honest. You learn to see them as a broken human being who is the way they are because of their own trauma and their own unhealed wounds. And it's from that vantage point of compassion and understanding that I think we find some liberation, we find some healing, not just for ourselves, but for others, the objects of our compassion and understanding. The person I've struggled to, to forgive the most in my life, I think, is my father. My dad suffers from mental illness, has so my entire life probably undiagnosed psychosis, undiagnosed depression, something like that. Um, and his psychosis was expressed really through his, his outrageous religious beliefs and his magical thinking. I mean, he believes he can control the weather, to put it frank. Anytime a storm 
I grew up in the Midwest. We actually have thunderstorms there. Anytime a thunderstorm would approach from the West, he would get out his amplified Bible. If you know what an amplified Bible is, it's anyway, it's not really pertinent, but he would get out his amplified Bible and gather the family and he would command, he'd quote some scripture. I think the one where Jesus says, if you pray and do not doubt, you can move any mountain. He would quote that scripture and they would pray and command the storm to cease and desist. And he was mostly concerned, he was an insurance adjuster. So he was mostly concerned about his, uh, his his range, in other words, the area of the of of the county he was responsible for. He didn't want extra work, but he also didn't want the house damaged, and so he would command these storms to cease and descend. And once in a while, when the storm would strangely turn a direction, different direction, he'd be like, "Ah, the Lord is with me." Um, I laugh. I could also cry, but I'm choosing to laugh. But you know, being raised in that environment, I I could tell you story after story. The gist is that I was told from a very young age, young age as a child, along with my three siblings, that we are in constant danger of being attacked by demons uh, who want to physically harm us, inflict illness on us and injury. And if we are not, if we are disobedient to our parents, if we are rebellious, if we are in any part sinful, we are leaving ourselves open for a demonic attack or a demonic possession. I was told at a young age, both. If you, if you have any sin in your life, any doubt, any unbelief, you are leaving yourself open for a demonic attack. Imagine a five-year-old believing that or demonic possession, or you are in danger of losing your salvation. I distinctly remember having a panic attack in junior high one day because I was convinced I was losing my salvation. I mean, that was, but panic attacks was, were normal in my house about such matters because we believed and we were taught that de demons were literally ever, lurking everywhere to, to destroy our lives. I mean, my father suffered from paranoid delusions. And so that instilled a lot of anxiety in us as kids. I can't tell you how much anxiety. And I'm convinced it led to my brother's early death at the age of 38 from drug and alcohol addiction. It wasn't until I was an adult, it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I realized something's wrong with dad. He's, he's got there's something wrong. Prior to that, I just thought he was really spiritual because, you know, if you grew up in a, in a hyper spiritual religious tradition like Pentecostalism, hearing voices, seeing demons, believing you have magical powers is revered. That's seen as great spiritual acumen, great faith. It's amazing how mental illness and personality disorders can hide in the church and be revered and branded something else. So that was him. So I was an adult when I realized that dad is really broken. Dad is mentally ill. And that led in large part to a lot of my deconstruction because it made me say to myself, well, all of my faith, the most important beliefs and convictions I hold were filtered through a, a very broken mind. What then is really real? What am I to believe? Who am I? Who am I? Those were the questions I was wrestling with 20 years ago. In a way, I'm still wrestling with them. Um, but that led me down that road to deconstruction and other things did too, but that was a big part of it lost trust in any kind of spiritual authority. And I also was exposed to pastors who frankly had personality disorders and uh, we'll go, you know, you know what I mean. 
So, but I learned that my father's condition, again, in adulthood, I, I learned that his condition probably stems from head trauma he received as a young child. Turns out he was struck by a car at the age of 10 crossing the street, hospitalized for months, nearly died. I imagine being traumatized like that as a child probably came with some PTSD. And untreated PTSD, as we all know, can lead to mental illness, personality disorders, right? We now know that what often presents as mental illness or a personality disorder is really just a trauma response or survival adaptation. The mind's attempt to cope with terrible stress. In any event, my father's mother, my grandmother, told me all this one day while sitting in the car. I was in my 20s, she was in her 90s. I can distinctly remember her in the seat next to me. I just dropped her off at home and she asked me to wait. <laughs> I knew I was gonna get emotional about this. Um, okay, so she, um, she must have been 93. And she told me that she was just so sorry about the way my father turned out and that she wished she could have been a better mother to him. But she just felt so guilty after his car accident. She felt like she had, you know, of course, like a mother, she blamed herself. And so she said, I spoiled him. I took him to psychologists after this. He was unruly. And the, and the doctors told me, you are letting this boy get out of control because you feel so guilty about what happened to him. You need to get a grip. You need to, do, you need to be a better mother, they told her. This is the 1950s. And so there she is in her 90s apologizing to me, a full-grown man, about the way my dad turned out and that he was a bad dad, and she blamed herself even for that. And understanding all that history about him, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go much so far into that, but understanding all that history about him allowed me to see him as less of a monster and more as just a hurt little boy, more as a broken human being who deserves mercy and compassion and some understanding. And so I pray, Father, forgive him for he knows not what he does. I still have a relation, well, I don't really have a relationship with him. I have told him since I love you and I wish you well, but the bottom line is there has to be boundaries in that relationship because he's a very hurtful person. He has never met my daughters, but I have forgiven him to a great degree. And that's what compassion and understanding looks like for me in that relationship with him. And I pray, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. And I find that kind of healing. I find that kind of liberating in my experience. And this way of being, this, this prayer, I think, applies to a lot of different areas of life. As, as some of you know, I... I have a part-time job. This is not my only job. I have a part-time job as the assist, um, a chaplain at an assisted living home here in Glendale. And that means that I often minister to people on hospice care, people that are near death, very, very elderly. And, which means that I see people 
languish for long periods of time, months, even years, in a hospital bed at this, this assisted living home, having to have others feed them, strangers change them, clean them. Many of them wonder, how could God allow me to suffer like this month after month, year after year? Why doesn't he just take me already? And these folks are suffering not just physically in, uh, in agony, but they are in, I mean, they're depressed. You can't even imagine. I mean, unless you've been there and seen and know somebody in an assisted living care for long periods of time, constricted to a bed at that age. I mean, it is terrible to see. Many of them, of course, wonder how, as I said, how could God let me go on like this? And many of them come up with the answer that this just must be part of God's goodwill for me. It just must be part of his mysterious goodwill that I can't understand right now, but this must just, God is good, God is all powerful, and this must be his goodwill for me. And I, frankly, I don't challenge that. Even though I disagree with that theology, I think that's terrible theology, I don't, I don't confront that because it is the last thing they have to hold on to. The only thing that has given them any sense of peace or comfort, this idea that somehow, some way, this is part of God's will for me and everything's going to be okay. It's the one thing in their life that's bringing them any comfort. And who am I to rob them of that? I think it would be kind of cruel and arrogant of me if I were to be like, well, let's read some Peter Rollins and some Nietzsche and deconstruct that bad theology. Uh, and, and, and yet, depending on the individual involved, I've actually had some really great conversations and, and been able to share my views with folks in that situation. But I err on the side of caution so as not to harm somebody who's already really vulnerable. I've learned to have compassion and understanding even for that, even though it, I find it triggering, that bad theology, right? Because I don't get to decide. I don't get to decide what somebody else finds comfort in, especially somebody in that much pain. I don't get to decide what beliefs should or should not bring somebody else comfort, especially in that much pain. And this applies not just to the dying or the elderly, but to anyone at any stage of life, because you never know. You never know what somebody is going through and what they need. Years ago, um, somebody left this church, left Central Avenue, because we were making it hard for them to stay sober. They were in recovery, and if you're familiar with 12-step programs, like most 12-step programs, there is this component where belief in a higher power is a big part of it, and that is a source of great strength to help people practice sobriety. And this individual had a very traditional evangelical understanding of God that depended upon a very literal reading of the Gospels, and of course that is often challenged here. And I think if their higher power was more, frankly, I guess the word would be progressive or a little more open-minded, then I think that they could have practiced their sobriety in this environment. But again, their understanding of God was based on a very little reading of the Gospels. And so they felt like their sobriety was in jeopardy going to a church that did that much deconstruction. And I told them, I totally get that. And I absolutely understand why you need to leave. And we're still friends today. But, but to be clear, I don't see this person as weak or, or unintelligent. 
I just see, see them as human. And I share this to reiterate this point. I don't get to decide, we don't get to decide what beliefs should or should not bring somebody else comfort, especially those who are doing theology for survival, for sobriety, things like that. Yes, there's, of course, venues and contexts where, like this on Sunday morning, I mean, where we challenge toxic theology. We have to challenge it. We have to speak out against it. We got to do some deconstruction. That is the path of Christ, I believe. But we got to be careful. We got to be discerning because a lot of people are doing theology for survival. We need to practice compassion and understanding is what I'm saying and find healing and liberation in the wake of that. It's funny, as, as an ex-evangelical, as a, uh, somebody who's done a considerable amount of deconstruction, like a lot of you here, I, um, I find myself sometimes, I find it hard to remember, is what I want to say, what it was like to be somebody else, who I was 5, 10, 20 years ago. I find it hard to remember that person, and what it was like to believe differently than I do now. It's funny how short our memory can be about those things. Um, I tend to have a really short-term memory about such things, and I found it can, it can make me a little judgy, <laughs> make me a little arrogant. I find myself too often saying, how could those people over there believe that garbage? How could they think that? How naive are they? Boy, that is a crazy thing to think. And I conveniently forget that it was 10 years ago. I mean, I'm in my 30s when I believed that, or in my 20s. Now, soon we forget. What's funny about that to me is that, well, again, how easily we forget, probably because we want to forget, you know, probably because we want to let go of that memory. But let's keep in mind, even in our progressive, post-evangelical, post-theistic, quasi-atheistic, pantheistic, panentheistic, wherever you find yourself on the theological spectrum today, and tomorrow it might be different, right? We're still using beliefs or unbeliefs or whatever book we just finished reading to construct a picture of reality and then use that picture of reality we have to cope with life and to give our lives meaning. In a sense, even the most atheistic among us is using beliefs and ideas and stories as a way of coping with life still. At the end of the day, it's all catharsis. Even nihilism is a kind of cathartic belief. The, the idea that everything is meaningless and nothing matters, that can actually be a very cathartic thing to believe. It can be a very liberating and comforting thing to believe, actually. And if that's your thing, cool. But it's not everybody's thing. And that's okay, too. If that's your belief, cool. But that's not everybody's belief, and that's okay, too. We need to accept that we all cope with life in different ways at different times for different reasons. We don't even understand what those reasons are, again, because we are strangers to ourselves. Because the unconscious and the ideas and the stories and the beliefs we're using at this point in our life to deal with life might not be the ideas, the stories, and the beliefs we use a year from now or five years from now. And that's okay. We need to understand that about each other and, and hold space for each other. 
compassion and understanding for each other. Life's hard. Life's really hard, really complex. We are all strangers to ourselves. We don't really know who we are or why we do what we do or think what we think or believe what we believe. We don't. This is the great revelation of therapy. But this should make us profoundly humble, compassionate, and merciful, and understanding for ourselves and for others. My hope is that if we've learned anything in, on this crazy spiritual journey so far, my hope is that it's, it's, it's at least that, that we've learned that. My hope is that we've learned to pray, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. And Father, forgive them, whoever them is for us, for they know not what they do. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Max and I never actually talk about coordinating the music with the messages, but sometimes it just really clicks well. Uh, and I really intended this to not be such a heavy message this morning. I was like, I'm going to preach a nice, light, happy sermon this morning. And then that happened. Uh, well, you know, this church was built for Lent. This is like a Good Friday, Holy Saturday. Steve's nodding yes. Yeah. All right. Um, Questions, comments, complaints. Now is the time that we discuss what was about. If anybody, if anybody wants to discuss it. Um, all right, Jen. So let me get you the mic so people uh, who are watching online can hear you. So I, I think it's really interesting and helpful that, you know, for the most part, we all come from an upbringing that wants to tell you how to feel and what should make you feel good and what should comfort you. And then even uh, in our current state of belief, we need to be reminded to not do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's not just, not just because it was how we were raised, but because that, I think that's kind of human to like want to, I don't know, this comforts me. So it must comfort you, right? you know? So I think that's really helpful to hear. Um, I think sometimes we may think that, oh, we're enlightened and we know better, but we still do that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and then one more thing. Yeah. Um, there's so much similarity, I think, between the relationship that you have our fathers. Mm. Um, so I think it's helpful to hear that, you know, I discovered a couple of years ago on a family reunion that my grandmother was in and out of mental institutions. Mm. And because of that, couldn't really care for her children 
one of them being my father, the way that she should have or that he needed. And there's a lot of neglect and abuse there. So learning that about my own father as an adult really helped me to see him in a more compassionate way and understand, you know, he was not, he wasn't set up for success as a father. So I'm not a hundred percent. I am not, I haven't a hundred percent forgave him for everything that he's done to me, but it does help to look at him in that way. So thank you. Yeah. Enough said. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Jen, for sharing that and being vulnerable. And yeah, thank you. Um, Somebody else, question, comment, reflection. And if you're online, my understanding is you can chime in as well. Yeah. Yeah, Dan. And then Emily. So I really believe in forgiveness and trying to have patience and compassion and just calmness and listening especially in this moment that we're all living in we've been living in for several years now um and there's certainly people in my family in my life that i struggle to forgive about certain things and i really like the idea that forgiveness is something that you can do for yourself as opposed to something you're granting someone else you know it's really not when you think about it you can forgive someone but what do they do with that forgiveness? You know, they might not even, it might not even be a thing. So it's really something for yourself internally to move on and to process. And that's, uh, I think a great thing to, to remember, but, um, is there, (laughs) is there room for, I don't, I don't even know how to really articulate this, but challenge someone who, because you said, you know, everyone copes differently. Everyone's, you know, if your theology is maybe a little bit bad, but as long as you're not going around hurting people, who am I to, you know, but then sometimes you are hurting people. So what's the, is there, is there a, an answer to trying to be, instead of being like, let's just steer clear and let them cope. Is there, is there some kind of a a different strategy for situations where if you are being harmful and you're, you're perpetuating a certain way of thinking or you're, these things will continue to propagate unless you take, you know, is there some kind of a, an action that can take, which is sort of maybe that's like the opposite of uh, being more passive and forgiving. And as I don't know. No, I mean, absolutely. Right. And, you know, um, I feel like we're a community that does the confrontation <laughs> really well. I feel like we're known as a community that <clears throat> is constantly at war with you know, our former evangelical selves and those to the, to the right of us. I feel like we're kind of constantly talking about and deconstructing bad theology. And a lot of us have online presences, um, specifically me and, and a few others, you know, I'm, I'm posting stuff on Facebook all the time that is um, deliberately confrontational towards bad theology. And, and, um, and obviously I care a lot about, you know, speaking out and, and doing that. And um, there's certainly times um, even at Windsor, <laughs> my part-time job as a chaplain, I'm known as the chaplain that makes everybody think in Bible studies, which me, which is it, they don't know the word deconstruction. I haven't like really taught them what deconstruction means, but we're doing, I do deconstruction with them. I get underneath the radar. 
in a nice way, not not in some kind of creepy weird way. I guess. But uh, but um, you know, even on like, so I go and I go and on Wednesdays I lead a Bible study, and Sunday afternoons I do a little um, service there where I where I preach, and I'm actually sharing this sermon, a, a different version of it, <laughs> one one that will work for them a little better. But I'm the, the same point and some of the same stories. I'm talking about my father. Um, I'm going to talk about Dan, you know, um, and just me even going into that environment with folks that are in their uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s who are who are evangelical, a lot of them. Some of them are progressive. Some of them are, are very progressive, actually, as progressive as we are. Um, but even in, most of them are very conservative. So even in that environment, there's relationship. And I guess that's the answer to your question, Dan. When there's relationship and there's a good context to have those those conversations and to do so not in a way that is really arrogant, I guess, but um, those kinds of conversations do happen even in that environment. And you just got to know the people you're talking to and, and know, you know, the subject matter at hand and present it in a way that is palatable to that audience, I guess, is the answer. Um, but I don't have, to be clear, I don't have a, I don't have a relationship with my father. I, you know, because he's incapable of having one, frankly, it's, I'm not working at that when it's impossible. But the last things I have said to him were very loving, and that's the best I can do. And sometimes that's the best you can do. That's the best any of us can do. But yeah, um, Emily, I know that you had a, did you have your hand raised? Okay, cool. Sometimes people stretch, and I'm like, is that a hand? <laughs> um, I think the whole like idea of the mental issues or illness or whatever stemming from the trauma that that person has um, dealt with in their life is sort of a little thing that hit for me for my dad because he was mm. raised by I'm sure we don't know much about his family because um, my grandfather's family because he died when my dad was like young from alcoholism. Mm. And there was severe abuse going on in his home. And then um, they went, he went to live with what we call crazy Aunt Emily, my namesake, mm. you know. Um, there was a long line of that. Yeah, but, I hear you. you know, was, but he went to live with her at 16 and started drinking also. And then he just repeated the behavior from his father because then he did it to my siblings. Um, and by the time I came, he was a dry drunk. So he never got, he didn't do the 12 step anything. He just was like, I don't drink anymore. But the behaviors were all still there. So he tried to make up with me what he didn't do with my siblings. So I have a bit of a different relationship, mm. but we all understand each other in the way of how does that, how is he capable of having a relationship, which is insane because who's not capable of having a relationship, but I don't know what that means because I am capable of having a relationship and I don't know what it's like to not be able to have yeah. one. So I think, you know, dealing with mental illness back then was a very interesting thing too. I mean, you know, in and out of mental institutions, but what happened at mental institutions and how did they treat you when you were mentally ill mm. and versus how did they treat you in the church when you were mentally ill, when you were mentally ill in the church, like you said, you're either revered because you're, yep. you know, seeing things are super delusional or, that you're uh, possessed by a demon and yep. that's what's taking over. And that's, and then you just, it always comes back to with us here, this thing with me <laughs> is that they take away your, 
your trust for yourself. Mm. You're not supposed to think for yourself or feel things because then that means something bad. So mm. then you have to stop doing that. So your gayness, you push down, you know, your, your questioning of whatever you push down, you're not getting along with your dad, you push down. And then all of a sudden, now you're a person who's got trauma as an adult. And I can see how this is cyclical, but hopefully with the deconstruction, and I think too, with all of the changes in the last two or three years that we've been dealing with, hopefully we'll be changing things for other people. Yeah. So. Yeah. And just listening to you is, I was thinking of the term, um, you know, or the phrase, you know, breaking a generational curse, you know, being able to recognize those things and get the help you need and, and to be able to share it, even in an environment like this shows a level of health, right. spiritual health, mental health. And, and the fact that a lot of that family um, trauma ends with you right. and you're not going to pass that on. And none of us are perfect. We all do pass something on, yeah. but by recognizing the stuff we're recognizing and having compassion, understanding for ourselves and for others in the way that we're talking about and practicing as Dan was saying, like some, some forgiveness, we, we break the generational curse is what I'm saying. And that's, well, and that's powerful. Talking. Talking, yes. Having an open yeah. forum for people who are yeah. feeling things that need to discuss them, where you'll find yeah. a kinship with other people. And that's what I love about this place is because yeah. we can all take the microphone and you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's a conversation. Which it's I what, think it, it's what it means to be the church. I mean, it shouldn't, that should be what it is. You're right. It should be. Yeah. <clears throat> Not being preached at. Yeah. And then walking away with questions that you never yeah. get answered. Yeah. Yeah, good, great stuff. Thank you, Emily. Anybody else? Oh, my Emily now. Okay, here we go. There's three Emilys here today, at least three. <clears throat> um, I was just gonna say, like, kind of going to what Dan was saying is that sometimes it's okay to apologize, like, to ask for forgiveness, um, just for your, your yourself, in the sense that. Uh, the example I was going to use was um, when we lived in Nashville and I was in grad school, but I was already a nurse. I was married. I was in my twenties. Um, and I did some babysitting on the side for some families from church. This was like a distant family from the church. And I babysat for them quite a few times. And then at one point, um, like I, I did, I stopped babysitting for them. This woman calls me years later. It was probably two years later. And she was like, I just need to ask for your forgiveness. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And she says, um, she, she proceeds to tell this like long convoluted story about how one time when I was babysitting for them, probably one of the last times that I was babysitting for them, um, she came home and apparently the kids had gone through like a lot of the bubble bath. And she assumed because I had made reference to the fact that I had a test in grad school the next day that I didn't like supervise her kids in the bathtub. Like she made this whole like assumption that I didn't, you know, even though I was like a registered nurse, like was married in my twenties, like adult, you know, responsible that I like didn't supervise her children because they used too much bubble bath. And apparently she'd like been talking about me for like years. <laughs> to all her friends, like, like making jokes about me and like, whatever. And she like proceeded to just like pour out this apology, like this tearful, because she felt so guilty about, you know, it was one of those where I was like, I can't 
remember the situation. It was two years ago, but I'm sure I didn't not supervise your children in the bathtub. I was like, maybe I just let them use a little more bubble bath than you do. But like, it was just this whole, and I was like, in the end, it just made me feel terrible. And I'm like, I'm really glad that like you got that off your chest, but that just made me feel awful. And maybe what you should have done is like go around to all the people that you had been talking to me about and say, I was wrong, you know, whatever. But like, I just feel like, yeah, there are definitely times where it's okay not to ask for forgiveness. Oh, for just, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> like sure. really, you got to have to like, think about your motivation. Like yeah. if it's really just like that, I was like, in the end, that was just about you. Yeah. That was not about making me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just left that feeling awful. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Any other comments, reflections today? What does this bring up for you? Anybody else? Can be anything. Hello? Hello. Hey, who's that? Oh, it's uh, Andre. Hey, Andre. Uh, good, to, good, to, <laughs> good to hear you. I don't see you, but we hear you. Uh, oh, let me turn on. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. There you go. Uh, now she'll see me. Uh, I was, I, uh, by the way, thank you for uh, sharing uh, your experience. I appreciate it. And it resonated with me as well. I do have uh, toxic presences in my uh, life and in my family. And uh, one thing that I feel like you touched upon that uh, I have been working on, I mean, personally, is the whole concept of forgiveness. And it kind of like my... Uh, idea and my perception of it has been and definition of it has been changing throughout the years from a clear cut feeling good just asking either accepting someone forgiveness from someone else or asking someone for forgiveness and okay it's a done deal from now on everything will be you know nice rosy and flowers but to more of a continuous exercise I feel like forgiveness is a continuous exercise because when you say that you accept when you forgive someone especially like with my parents for example forgiving them for some of their flaws or wrongdoings it's not just for the ones in the past but it's also from the ones that are going to still coming and I think it's kind of an engagement to be okay with their some of their negatives and destructive and toxic behaviors, but not only the ones that have passed, the ones that are happening right now, and the ones that you know will happen in the future, because the likelihood of them, we all can change, but it does not happen that often as we would love to. So it's kind of like, I feel like forgiving is, in a sense, also putting yourself at peace that these things are going to keep happening. And either I learn to accept it for myself, or it's their choice ultimately to change. So I don't have control over that. So I think it's a, a continuous exercise. You don't just forgive once, otherwise it's just a cycle and you keep repeating it. You forgive them, then you have the conversation again and then you forgive them again. And they're like, well, okay, this is the last time and it's gonna keep happening. So I feel like that kind of like shape, shape changed, shifted my per perception of it too. You constantly forgive also for the things that are gonna happen in the future and you learn to accept the these people for who they are and love them regardless of that but at the same time it also ties with the other thing that you mentioned which is boundaries especially with toxic presences which is hard and makes this i feel like makes forgiveness even harder for me in the sense that 
at the same time, you also have to protect yourself. So you have to like keep balancing these two aspects of I love you and I want to keep you in my life and I want you to better yourself, but at the same time, I also have to protect myself and the other people in my life that I that uh, it's my responsibility to protect. And I feel like it's a constant game of equilibrium. At least that's the way I, of balance. That's the way I perceive it at the moment between protecting ourselves and also trying to reach out, but keep repeating that it is a, it's ultimately their choice and everyone makes their choices and there's nothing I can do about that. That's it. Sorry, just, I'm, I've been rambling a lot, but no, I really great. appreciate no, no, it. I you opening about that. Thank you that. for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, man, it's, yeah. it's Absolutely. Good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. It's good to see you. You're, you're, you're on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ron. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm All right. Well, um, thank you so much, everybody. Well, I think we need to conclude here. Um, we're going to take a five minute break between the end of service here and our congregational, our annual congregational business meeting. If you want to stay and hear about that, and if um, you're a member, vote, um, please do so. Uh, everybody's welcome. Um, but yeah, we'll start that in five minutes. And otherwise, thank you so much for being here and go in peace. Thank you.